You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Cigarettes and a bottle of beer It's poem that I wrote for you It's Blackstone and these hot tears Are all I got left now of you I remember you in the marine uniform Laughing, laughing at your Chappelle party I read Robert McNamara Sissy, sorry Your high boots and striped t-shirt I believe you looked so bad Yeah, you and your rock and roll band You were the best thing this shit town ever had Another minute put your head with the families In rich dining hall an apology and forgiveness got no place here at all. Hit the wall. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. We are one episode and a wake up away from the very end of the show, and since I am saving the very last issue of the NOM for episode 100, I'm going to take time today to do another special, this time talking about events in both Vietnam and the United States after the war. How did the United States heal from such a tumultuous time in our history? What was life like in Vietnam after the fall of Saigon in 1975? And how do the two countries relate to one another in 2019? I'm going to seek to shine a light on the answers to these questions by looking at the history behind memorials to the Vietnam War in the United States, with an emphasis on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Then I'll take a look at the post-war history of Vietnam and how the country's relationship with the United States improved in the past four decades. And that will feature a look at Season 8, Episode 1 of Anthony Bourdain's series, Parts Unknown, where he visits Hanoi. Our song this time around is by Bruce Springsteen and is called The Wall. It is taken from High Hopes, Springsteen's 2014 album, which was the follow-up to the 2012 album Wrecking Ball. and is a unique studio album because it is an album full of cover songs previously and released songs that were outtakes or songs that only appeared on stage and were never recorded in the studio until then. The Wall had its origins in 2003, and according to a look at the album in Rolling Stone, it surfaced at a 2003 concert for Double Take magazine. Springsteen played it again on Two Devils and Dust tour stops, but it hadn't been heard in the past eight years. The title and idea were Joe Grishecki's. Springsteen wrote in a message accompanying the High Hopes press release. Then the song appeared after Patty and I made a visit to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. It was inspired by my memories of Walter Chikon. No, Kichon. Kichon. Walter was, or Kikon. Walter was one of my, of the great early Jersey Shore rockers, who along with his brother Ray, one of my early guitar mentors, led the motifs. 
The Motifs were a local rock band who were always ahead above everybody else. Raw, sexy, and rebellious, they were heroes you aspired to be. And I'm going to start by looking at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and Vietnam Memorials in the country. A look that begins with what is the most notable, which is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. There were repeated comments of long overdue, long overdue, as the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was dedicated in Washington today and thousands of Vietnam veterans marched on Constitution Avenue. Bruce Morton has our report. parade was for the veterans, impromptu groups sometimes stopping to sing patriotic songs. Like the rest of the day, the official program was the least important part. Mostly the day was people, people who had served, people who had mourned, people and the wall. A father who had lost his son. That was the last thing that Jim said, Dad, I love my country. I don't want to go, but I love my country. So uh, that gives me an uplift to know that he loved this country. He didn't want to go, but he was willing to sacrifice his life. And he did after 30 days over there. A soldier who'd come back. All these people on these walls, my friend, as far as I'm concerned, I wish they could have did something a long time ago. We didn't need no parades or that. All we needed was a little bit of respect. Respect was all around today. The patriots of an earlier American war talked of risking their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. The lives that were lost remain lost, of course. Young men denied their chance at fortune. But maybe today, the Americans who went to war and those who didn't, maybe they all regained some honor. Standing before this monument, we see reflected in a dark mirror dimly, a chance now to let go of the pain, the grief, the resentment, the bitterness, the guilt. This was a day when it was all right for grown men to cry. Thank you, America. Thank you, finally, for remembering us. Memory, honor. Names on a wall full of memory and honor. A lot of the information that I'm getting, by the way, comes from the National Parks Service, and that is the agency that oversees and maintains the wall. It's been a while since I've been there. I did visit a few times when I was living in Arlington, Virginia, not too far from the National Mall. Because I have a problem where I keep too many things, I still have a copy of the pamphlet that tourists can pick up if they visit the memorial. I'll scan it and I'll post pictures to the show notes so you can see it. So the idea for a memorial began on April 27, 1979, which is when Jan Scruggs, a former infantry corporal during the war, formed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, which was the nonprofit organization whose mission it was to establish the memorial in hopes of having what they said was a tangible symbol of recognition from American society. Their criteria for memorial design had to meet four metrics. One, it had to be reflective and contemplative in character. 
two, it had to harmonize with its surroundings, especially the neighboring national memorials. Three, it had to contain the names of those who died or remain missing. Four, it could not make any political statement about the war. The hope here was that separating the politics and policy from those who served could, quote, begin a process of national reconciliation. The site where the memorial now sits, which is Constitution Gardens near the Lincoln Memorial, was designated by Congress on July 1st, 1980, and that fall a design contest was announced. The contest was open to anyone who was 18 years of age or older. 1,421 designs were submitted, and all were put on display at Andrews Air Force Base. In the interest of fairness, all of the designs were presented without names or background information. They were just given numbers. They were narrowed down until entry number 1,026, 1026, was selected. That entry was the work of 21-year-old Yale architecture student Maya Lin, who had been born in Athens, Ohio. The design was conceived as a park within a park, one that was, as the memorial brochure says, a quiet, protected place unto itself, yet harmonious with the site. This was done via the materials used, black granite, which is reflective, and if you have ever been to the wall, you know what I'm talking about. The design itself is deliberate as well. The walls point toward the Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial, and the way that the 58,209 names are displayed is in a specific manner. They begin at the ends with the deaths listed from 1955 and 1975, which is where the wall is at its shortest, and you descend to the highest part of the wall, which features names from the late 1960s, specifically 1968. Lynn's design is literally that of a scar in the earth, and in addition to the names, there are a few symbols. A diamond next to a name denotes that the person's death was confirmed. A cross indicates the person was either considered MIA or POW at the end of the war and remained missing and unaccounted for. If a person returns alive, a circle, which is a symbol of life, is inscribed around the cross. If a death is confirmed, for example, if, it, if remains are returned, a diamond is superimposed over the circle. Lynn's design was not without controversy, and two major donors, James Webb and H. Ross Perot, withdrew their support because they considered it, quote, a gash of shame and, quote, nihilistic. And the result was a compromise that was reached wherein near the wall were an American flag along with a statue called the Three Soldiers. That statue was sculptured by Frederick Hart and features three soldiers, one who is white, one who is African-American, and one who is Latin American, wearing fatigues and carrying weapons while looking in the direction of the wall. The National Park Service quotes Frederick to describe the statue, saying, They wear it on their uniform and carry the equipment of war. They are young. The contrast between the innocence of their youth and the weapons of war underscores the poignancy of their sacrifice. There is about them the physical contact and sense of unity that bespeaks the bonds of love and sacrifice that is the nature of men at war. Their strength and their vulnerability are both evident. In 2004, a plaque was added near the statue that recognizes those who served in the war and died after they returned home as a result of injuries suffered in a war, something that sometimes falls outside the Defense Department's guidelines of being considered a war casualty. This plaque reads, quote, in memory of the men and women who served in the Vietnam War and later died as a result of their service, we honor and remember their sacrifice. One other soldier stands on this site, which is the Women's Memorial. This was spearheaded in 1984 by First Lieutenant Diane Carlson Evans, an Army nurse who served in Vietnam. 
She created the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation and a statue, which was dedicated on November 11th, 1993, was designed and sculpted by Glenna Goodacre. It depicts three women coming to the age of fallen soldier, recalling the courage and sacrifice of all women who served. Planted around the memorial are eight yellowwood trees, representing the eight women who died in the Vietnam War. Like I said, I haven't been there in a number of years, but I can say that the memorial leaves its mark. It's a solemn place, and as you walk down the wall and look at the names, you feel the gravity of the place and what it represents. That's made more poignant when you see the people around it who have more of a direct connection to the wall because the name of a family member or a friend is there. And you can locate the names, by the way, by looking through a database or a directory that is located by the entrance to the wall. Many people take graphite rubbings of the names. But more notably are the things that they leave behind. Now in the show notes, there will be a link to the official site of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, which has a page on its website about items left at the wall. They estimate that since the memorial was officially dedicated on November 13, 1982, people have left behind more than 400,000 items at the wall. They've included dog tags, rubbings, flags, equipment and gear like helmets, clothing, radios and boots uniform patches, lighters, toys, medals, photographs. The items are not thrown away after they are left, but they are stored in the National Park Service Museum Resource Center, where they are cataloged. In the past, there have been items put on display in some museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of American History. And it must be noted that the items are mostly left anonymously by people who are simply visiting. There was an effort to build an education center near the wall, and a groundbreaking ceremony was held in 2012, However, that project wound up being canceled in 2018 due to insufficient funds, and the Vietnam Memorial Fund decided to dedicate their efforts toward a more digital version of their archive, which you can see on their website. Like I said, I will link to their site in the show notes uh, because there's a lot of really great information about the wall, means to donate if you're interested, and the exhibit, the online exhibit of Things Left Behind is really, really fascinating and, um, and, and very, very poignant. Now, the wall itself has been a part of a number of pieces of popular culture. We saw it in the Punisher comics that I discussed, as well as the film In Country and the finale of China Beach. And the song that began this episode, of course, is about the wall. It's not the only Vietnam memorial in the country, of course. In my short look at documentaries, I mentioned the documentary about Latinos in Vietnam, which features the men who maintain a memorial in Arizona. I've been to two local memorials myself. The first is the one on Bald Hill on Long Island. It's a 100-foot obelisk that is constructed of Georgia Cherokee marble, and the top half of it is emblazoned with the American flag. According to the Long Island Vietnam Veterans Association, it acknowledges the service and sacrifice of all Vietnam veterans, those who died, those who were wounded, and the men and women who served. It is hoped the memorial will help heal the trauma of those warriors in spirit of reconciliation and remembrance. It is a striking monument, especially as this is such a high point on the island, and going there offers some very nice views of the area. The other one I wanted to mention is local to where I live now, and one I visited about a month ago before putting this episode together, and that's the Vietnam Dogwood Memorial in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's located in the corner of McIntyre Road and Route 250. It's in McIntyre Park. Route 250 is a major highway in Charlottesville, so it's located right around the highway, although it... I'm pretty sure it predates how big that road has become over the last even 10 years, uh, 10 or 15 years since I've been here. Anyway, it has plaques for each of the men killed in the war. 
They are arranged in half circle with the flags of each branch of the military as well as the American flag around it. There is also a highway historical marker that reads, The Dogwood Vietnam Memorial, a project of the Charlottesville Dogwood Festival, Incorporated, was conceived late in 1965 after news arrived of the first casualty of the Vietnam War from this era. Consisting of a plaza with a plaque and a flagpole, the memorial was dedicated on the 20th of April, 1966, and is believed to be the nation's first public Vietnam veterans memorial. The site honors all who served the United States during the war, especially those from Charlottesville and Albemarle County who gave their lives. The memorial known as the Hill That Heals was renovated and expanded in 2014-2015. The Dogwood, by the way, is the state flower of Virginia, so that's where you get the name the Dogwood Memorial. Uh, in fact, I have a dogwood tree in my in my front yard so anyway i posted some pics to the site so that you can see it but i definitely say that even though it's not a well-known memorial it's not as huge as the national memorial in washington and even though i really don't have a personal connection to it or other other than that i live here now when visiting it i could still feel how important it is it still had this presence or a sense of gravity maybe that's because I've always known to show respect while visiting these sorts of memorials. And that I find local memorials to the dead in a war of any sort event to be just as vital to the history and character of our country as, say, what we see on a national scale. Forgive my inserting of personal opinion there. And forgive me for saying that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is my favorite on the National Mall. Because favorite is the title you give to, I don't know, a museum or something rather than a, mer- a memorial to fallen soldiers. But it is a poetic piece of architecture, and I think we're fortunate to have Maya Lin's design be such a major part of it, because it really has lent gravitas to the event and given quite a number of people a chance to reflect and heal. The same can be said for those smaller memorials and monuments, which serve as places of honor, but also reminders of sacrifice, perhaps in the hope that our reflection and contemplation we can learn from what happened. Going to take a break here. And then I'm going to delve a little more into the history of Vietnam itself, starting with the country's post-war history and then its relationship with the United States. Stick around. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis? And how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. So the Vietnam War as we know it officially ended on April 30th, 1975, with the fall of Saigon to the NVA and the surrender and dissolution of the government of South Vietnam. Reunification, as it is known in the country, occurred over the following year with some of the most notable and some cases infamous aspects of it being the renaming of Saigon to Ho Chi Minh City and many people who were from fought for or supported the South Vietnamese being sent to re-education centers. 
The country was also devastated from the war, with estimates between 1 and 4 million dead, as well as thousands affected by the use of napalm and Agent Orange. However, the end of the war did not bring the end of war to the country. In 1978, after Khmer Rouge forces from Cambodia raided villages along the border, Vietnam invaded its neighbor, driving the regime out, but also bringing criticism and response from the international community, most notably China, who attacked Vietnam in 1979 and fought a brief war for three weeks. The war in Cambodia lasted 10 years until Vietnam withdrew in between that and hardline communist economic policies. The country was more or less in shambles by the time the Soviet Union, one of its closest allies and economic boosters, collapsed in the early 1990s. The country began to recover through that decade by starting to mimic what was going on in China at the time. More private and for-profit businesses were allowed. Relations with the United States at the time were non-existent, at least in the 80s, and it wasn't until President Clinton visited the country in 2000 that an American head of state set foot on Vietnamese soil. Prior to Clinton, Richard Nixon had been the last president to visit Vietnam. This was the first step toward normalizing relations between the two countries, and while Vietnam still has border disputes with Cambodia and China, hostilities in the region have cooled in the last couple of decades, and the country has made gains in economic areas. It's even considered to be an emerging industrial power in Southeast Asia. And to get an idea of what it's like, I thought about travel shows that I've watched over the years, some of which have gone to Vietnam. Interestingly enough, one of the first places I saw Vietnam on television outside of the context of war movies was in the third season of The Amazing Race, which I think was about 2002 or 2003. Their leg in Vietnam was a memorable one because on this season, a Vietnam vet named Ian was on one of the teams with his wife, Terry, and he returned to the country for what I think was the first time since he fought in the war. I remember that he was actually one of the more annoying contestants that season. He would constantly tell Terry to hump it when she was going too slow and they had to run. Like, he'd constantly be like, come on, Terry, hump it, Terry, hump it. Although now that, you know, we've, <laughs> we've heard from Nom Notes humping the boonies and things like that, I kind of know where he gets the expression. I've also seen episodes of some of Martin Yan's cooking shows on PBS where he's traveled to Vietnam and he's cooked some of the food. But the person whose lens I re remember seeing Vietnam and Southeast Asia through the most is the late Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain, if you're not familiar with him, rose to notoriety in the late 1990s and early 2000s with his memoir Kitchen Confidential, which was half autobiography and half tell-all about the restaurant industry. This may be conjecture on my part, but it was a landmark book because of the way it showed us so much of what went on in that industry and came at a time when the rise of the celebrity chef was going on. Bourdain would follow up that book with a cook's tour in 2001, which also had an accompanying television show on the Food Network. In season one of the show, he visited Ho Chi Minh City as well as the Mekong River, during which he famously ate a cobra heart. He also visited Cambodia that season. He would travel to Thailand and Singapore in season two, as well as Hanoi. Bourdain's next show was for the Travel Channel. It was called No Reservations, which featured two episodes in Vietnam, two in Malaysia, one in Laos, one in Thailand, and one in Cambodia. He then headed over to CNN, where he produced and starred in 12 seasons of Parts Unknown until his tragic death by suicide in 2018. Notable Southeast Asian destinations on this show included the premiere episode in Myanmar, or Burma, Thailand in, in Season 3, Vietnam in Season 5 and 8, Laos in Season 9, and Bhutan in Season 11. And it's that Season 8 episode where Bourdain takes one last trip to Hanoi, and that's what I'm going to focus on. Uh. 
So as I mentioned, this is the third series that Bourdain was known for. And if you watched one of the series but not the others, you still have an idea of what his shows were like. From what I understand, a lot of the reason a Cook's Tour and No Reservations ended was because Bourdain did not like how Scripps, the parent company of the Food Network and the Travel Channel, tried to interfere with production or used his likeness. He apparently had a great relationship with CNN, as this show lasted much longer than any of the others. I believe it's also his last, if not one of the last episodes set in Vietnam, as I mentioned. Hanoi, as you know, is the country's capital. It was the capital of North Vietnam. It, of course, became associated with everything of the United States enemy during the war, the communists, as well as the brutal treatment of POWs in what was known as the Hanoi Hilton. And while Bourdain does mention the war, or what the Vietnamese refer to as the American War, and there is archival footage of the war, his focus is more on the here and now in Vietnam, and I honestly think that he does a great job of presenting the country. Through his time as a writer and television host, Bourdain presented an era of perceived coolness, was sometimes even a cynical bastard. But the image was also one that strived to be authentic. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that none of it was an act, but there are moments in this episode and many of his other shows where he is being earnest and that doesn't come off as cloying or cheesy. He also does what he can not to be condescending to the locals either, which I've seen happen on other travel shows. Plus, I think there are a few things to learn here. First, the country is much younger than it lets on. I mean, yeah, there are thousands of years of Vietnamese history, much of which is defined by war. But one thing that is important to know is that a large portion of the population is younger than the Vietnam War that we've been looking at, so the memories of that war are not as visceral as they are for the nation's veterans. Granted, that is something we see in all cultures as time and history march on, but there it's important because it helps redefine the country. And that's the second thing. The new and the old are clashing in a way as more Western businesses and industries are growing while older traditions are beginning to be set aside or lost. Bourdain spends part of the episode on a houseboat talking to a family that has lived there for generations and made a living fishing in those waters. The government has been encouraging them to relocate, and while some are stubborn and don't want to leave, others say they would leave if the government would pay them to do it. The idea of common ground through common experiences and perhaps better understanding between two groups that were once enemies comes through what is probably the most famous segment of the episode, and that is where Tony meets up with then-President Barack Obama, at a restaurant named Bun Cha Huang. Bourdain gets patted down by the Secret Service, the presidential limo pulls up, Obama steps out and waves at a cheering crowd, and they stand outside and talk for a little while. Bourdain relates the smell and how even when he first visited Vietnam, it attracted him in such a big way, and it's one of the reasons he keeps returning. Obama comments on the atmosphere and how it makes him feel nostalgic for the time he spent in Jakarta, Indonesia, when he was a kid. They then head inside, and Bourdain narrates that the restaurant is a local cheap noodle place that his family run. 
The two of them sit among the other customers on plastic chairs at a small table. They clink bottles of beer together. They eat bun cha, which is a noodle soup that has a spicy pork. They drink some cold beer with it, and Obama lets Bourdain more or less walk him through how to prepare the dish. The chilies, the noodles, and the dish come to the table separately, and you more or less put it together right there. The food looks really good, by the way, and if I may interject, Vietnamese food is outstanding, and if you have a restaurant in the area, I'd go at least once. As he eats, Obama talks about what he calls one of his favorite meals of all time. It was from a roadside restaurant in Indonesia that served a real simple meal of fried fish over a bed of rice. They also talk about why you don't put ketchup on a hot dog, and I kind of felt called out because Bourdain was appalled that he saw his daughter putting ketchup on eggs. Anyway, the conversation between the two of them is very casual, and then they turn back to the issues of the day, which was the rhetoric from what was then the 2016 presidential campaign about building walls at our borders to the outreach and diplomacy that Obama was known for during his time in office. Bourdain wishes that more Americans had passports and the means to travel internationally, and Obama says it confirms the basic truth that people everywhere are pretty much the same the same hopes and dreams, and when you come to a place like Vietnam and you see former American Vietnam vets coming back, when you see someone like a John Kerry or a John McCain, two very different people politically and temperamentally, but who were able to bond in their experiences, meeting with their former adversaries, and you don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. Bourdain then asks, is it all going to be okay? And Obama sounds optimistic, saying, I think things are going to work out. We then turn our attention back to the country itself and to the war. Tony talks to Tao Griffiths, who is a native to Vietnam, who works as a country director for the Vietnam Veterans of America Foundation and has the honor of having been a Fulbright scholar and an Eisenhower fellow. Bourdain points out what was earlier said in the episode, that a lot of the country's population has no memory of the war. He mentioned that Griffiths, uh, Tao Griffiths, who he's talking to, that she used to be a tour guide and that the war museum was always a stop on the tour. And then he asks her, In your lifetime, is there going to be a time when that's not going to have to be a stop? It won't be necessary. It won't even be important. No one will remember. Or should people always remember? I think it's good to remember so we don't make the same mistake. You know, some people choose to be angry, to hold grudge, but then some people choose to let go and uh, for the peace inside themselves. That's up to the person. And I think it's, it's good that It's, it's important that we know about history. And to make sure it's never happened again. I met a lot of war veterans, and surprisingly, a lot of them don't feel, don't have any angers against their old enemies. And that's, that's amazing. That's, that is amazing. I learned so much from them.
for Vietnamese, we have so many legends. But the majority of legends related to our tradition of fighting against foreign invaders and to protect our country. Over the last 20 years of my life, I've seen a lot of changes. And we know that there's still a lot of shortcoming. But everything needs time. We need to be patient. We, we can't rush because we really don't want another war. She gets emotional while saying this, and I have to say that I felt it. In fact, I felt that this episode really did its job, and while Bourdain had his own narration and opinions, he and his production team did an outstanding job of letting the people in the country speak for itself. Bourdain emphasized the beauty and the simplicity of what he was seeing, which is a running theme through all of his shows, but also went for that message of universality that came through his conversation with President Obama. I think that's an important moment as well. And not just because I voted for the man twice. I did the math and neither Bourdain nor Obama were ever old enough to have the chance to serve in the Vietnam War. When we left Vietnam in 1973 and then ended the draft in the same year, Bourdain was 17 and Obama was 12. So they literally are the first part of the post-Vietnam generation. The first to be indirectly affected by the war because perhaps they grew up around people who were serving or perhaps were even casualties of that war. They are starting to answer the question that Bourdain asked Griffiths, who is also part of the post-war generation, and is in fact only one year younger than I am. So her answer that talks about healing and moving on from one's anger and finding inner peace adds to what Obama said earlier in the episode. It's also important sentiment, especially for younger generations, who can find value in learning about these different places and people in the world on their own and for their own without the taint of prejudice from older generations and their agendas. I'm going to take another break here and when I get back I'm going to have feedback that will wrap things up. But you don't understand there was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course Milhouse is in game. Yes, and Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that who is she calling? Nelson. You know why? Because they are endgame. It's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show has been going on for like so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's like it's been 30 years. Yeah, that's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Backgirl to Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm. Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were kids, you didn't think it would go very far? What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh. Ten episodes a year. Would you ever come first? Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a girl! Yeah! And girls have cooties! Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it! By doing what? Mansplaining? 
And casplaining. Ugh. Well, anyway, 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December, and of course the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call and show for listeners will be scheduled in December, and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully. Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you. You're, no. Fly on with Backroll the Oracle in 2020. And I'm back. I have a few things of feedback, some emails that I've been holding on to, some comments and stuff um, that I've been holding on to for this episode. This first one is from Josh Johnson. He says, Hi, Tom. I've been a listener of your show for about a year now. I discovered it when I was thinking of starting my own podcast as I wanted to do one on something that's been done to death. So I thought, or maybe he said, um, as I, he says, I wanted to do one on something that's been done to death, but I think he means that he didn't want to do something on something that's been done to death. So he said, I thought the NOM would be a good choice as one of my favorite comic series, but I decided to do a quick Google search to see if there were any other NOM podcasts first to be sure. That's when I came across In Country, and man, I'm glad I did. The structure of your episodes is really good, using different music from the time, adding historical context and examining every inch of the comic, not just the story itself. It's pretty fun to look through those old weird ads and reading people's letters and reactions from 30 years ago. Also, your coverage of Vietnam War films made me seek them out and watch them. Prior to this, the only one I had seen was the Green Berets, which I saw as a kid numerous times and thought was awesome. I still enjoy it as an adult, but understand why it's shunned by people who favor films like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, which I watched once I started listening. I have about a third to half of the run collected. I first came across the series by chance when I bought a comic four-pack from Five Below about five years ago and pulled out issue 12. Huh. People listening to this be like, wait, comic packs at Five Below? Um, I've seen them too. I haven't. I've resisted the temptation to buy them, so, but... If there's like old stuff in there, I might have to sneak by my five below and see if uh, see if there's anything, even though I'm really not supposed to be buying back issues. All right. Anyway, back into Josh's email. He says, I never heard of the non before. When I read it, I knew I was going to want to read more, being that I like reading and learning about history. I found issue eight at my LCS in the 25 cent box and then decided to hunt down whatever I could. Somewhere in my scavenging, I picked up issue 15. That is probably my, in my top five favorite comics of all time with how well Murray conveyed returning troops and the harsh treatment they received. I'm disappointed that I jumped on board in-country just as you were starting to wind down, but I still have plenty of episodes to listen to. I only listen to episodes that cover the issues I've already read, so I'm not spoiled. Oh, that's cool. That's what I did with another show. I think it was the Ryan Daly Secret Origins show. I've only been listening to the episodes for issues that I've read. But that gives me more of a drive to go back issue hunting for issues I don't have. Finally, I just wanted to say thanks for spotlighting this underrated comic series for 100 episodes. It's a shame war comics have really been drowned out by superheroes these days. And I think people should go back and read war comics as a breath of fresh air. In fact, I'm still kicking around ideas for my own podcast, and the only one really leading towards is a general war comics podcast, giving titles like Sergeant Fury and Sergeant Rock, but also stuff from Charleston, EC Comics, and various others from the 50s and 60s, and up to modern stuff like Garth Ennis's War Stories. That idea definitely is inspired by you and your work on In Country. So I just want to say thanks for a great podcast, and congrats on 100 episodes. Josh Johnson. Thank you, Josh, really. And dude, go and make that podcast. Um, war comics are really up underrepresented these days um talking with guys and and people on twitter uh like people like luke jack and eddie who's been on the show a couple of times and um other podcasters who really like war comics has given me a real appreciation for stuff like sergeant rock um which I've, i have a few issues here and there and i've, I've read i've had a few issues i've read them here and there um 
Luke uh, sent me a copy of the showcase that featured the Kanegar-Kubert uh, uh, Enemy Ace uh, stories, which is outstanding. Um, I'm easily one of my favorite war comics, in addition to, say, the Nam. This podcast came out of the fact that I had found an enormous part of the run at my LCS in, like, 50-cent boxes, and then was like, well, I, I kind of had your thought where I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this because nobody else was doing it. Um, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit more more detail, but it was kind of the same thought. And then I was like, well, let me give it a shot. And um, I really do have to say uh, thank you for thank you for the really kind words. That that means a lot to me. It's We kind of podcast into a vacuum in, in some regard. You know, I'm sitting here in my basement just talking to a microphone. And uh, to hear somebody like really, really enjoys the show and everything, especially since you know you put a lot into it, uh, really, really makes me feel good. So, Josh, if you if you do get that podcast off the ground, send, let me know, and and I'll subscribe because that sounds like it'll be really, really fun. All right, our next is from David Thornton. He said, "I recently found a book on Amazon.com that sounds like it includes an al- analysis of the Nam comic book series, and it's called Comics." trauma new art and war he says i have no connection to the book i'm just a fan who enjoys your podcast and thought you might like the book i hope this email finds you well cool i'm gonna go ahead and put that in the uh, show notes a link to that uh, so you can buy it if you're interested in it i'm putting it on my uh, my my list to see if my library picks it up or if i you know buy it at some point after i'm done with the pile of things that uh I, that i can find um, the NOM itself, by the way, anybody who's listening, is I have not checked Comixology or anything to see if it's available digitally. I will do that before next episode. I know there were trades in the past that you could probably find in a discount trade bin and things like that, but it did get collected only up to a certain point, and the latter part of the run does still seem pretty hard to come by. So just kind of keep that in mind if you're starting to collect the series or looking to collect the series. But that will do it for episode 99. I hope you got something out of this look at Vietnam War Memorials as well as the post-war history of the country and a look at how it is today. Thanks for everybody who wrote in for feedback. David, Josh, um, people who like me on Facebook. I really do appreciate it. But next time we are just down to our wake-up. That means we are, as they would say back in the Nam, getting on that freedom bird and getting out of here. Going back to the world. That's right. It is the final episode of In Country, episode 100. I will be taking a look at the final issue of the NOM, the NOM number 84, and I will reflect on the series as a whole. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Well, I'm sorry I missed you last year Couldn't find no one to drive me You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. 
Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Rustling the leaves as they fall An apology and forgiveness Got no place here at all Hate the one I'm